We're going to read from Philippians chapter 3. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. Our exhortation this morning is going to come from a separate passage, but this is likewise applicable and will come out. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the price, the prize, and the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Turn with me now to Second Peter. Second Peter will read the first four verses there, where it reads, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, having been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Having read God's word and heard it now, let us call upon him. O Heavenly Father, bless the reading of your word to the good of our souls. Prepare our hearts as we hear now your word applied. Give clarity to the speaker and let nothing be said but that which is from you. Be with those of us gathered here that all may have ears to hear. We pray all this in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, consider for a moment those words. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are well accustomed to hearing the phrase or some variation of it. This common greeting of God's people is something we may not think much of, but consider for a moment what is being said. Dear, cherished, precious, you are valued, not only valued by the speaker, but valued by the God who addresses you through his word applied to your life today. Congregation, assembly, worshipers, organized in the united purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Master, our King. Very often we overlook the great detail and care put into small things. We have a tendency to read quickly the opening phrases of an epistle like Second Peter, thinking these are pleasantries or flowery introduction rather than words meant for our strengthening and encouragement. But we must take time to carefully consider the great detail and doctrine the apostle uses as he opens his second letter. Let's walk together this morning and consider these scriptures. 
The apostle introduces himself as the author of this letter and includes his credentials, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostles were called to a unique office in the history of God's people. Peter is one of the chosen few who walked with and witnessed the life of our Savior. I find it hard to imagine what that would be like, to be there and to witness the works of Christ and to exercise the particular power and authority granted to the apostles. To see firsthand and to be part of the fulfillment of the scriptures. But Peter's credentials are not all not are not only that of apostle, but also a bond servant. Not merely a hired hand or a willing follower of the Christ, but a servant, a slave. In just these few words, Peter reminds all believers that he is redeemed by the very same blood shed for those he is writing to and in the service of his master. He writes with the authority given to him by our Lord. He continues addressing the letter to those who have obtained like precious faith. He is speaking to those who, like himself, have been redeemed by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, fellow bondservants. Peter spares no time at all to remind Christians of the great price that has been paid for their redemption. This is the very foundation of all that Peter will write. So valuable is the sacrifice made to redeem you from your sin and misery that the gift which is freely given here is called precious. And indeed it is precious. For it cannot be lost. It cannot rust. It cannot be stolen. It cannot be earned or bought. And its value only increases with age. It is as our catechism describes that heartfelt trust and sure knowledge that all our sins are forgiven. It is not only knowing of our great need for a Savior and the sacrifice Christ made for sin, but it is the second birth, the calling of the Holy Spirit worked in us by the preaching of the word that convinces and assures us that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. That is the like precious faith that Peter is speaking of, and it is the foundation of all that Peter has to say in his epistle. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter gives an opening blessing to the saints reading his letter in language favored by the apostles, grace and peace. These may be common words in the Christian vocabulary, even adorning the name of this congregation, and yet how greatly do we need to hear of them? How often do we find ourselves in a state without peace? Anxiety and fear seem like a daily occurrence. What will tomorrow hold? What evil is in store for the future? The remedy to all that is here in Peter's introduction. He writes to remind Christians of the source of the grace and peace which they receive, the knowledge of God. Not only that, he seeks great increase in grace and peace for the flock. As Reformed folks, we are well aware that knowledge of God is necessary. We often recall the words of Paul, where he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? Certainly faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But Paul here is talking about our justification. In these passages uh, from his epistle, Paul speaks of hearing as the means used by the Holy Spirit to save sinners. Peter here is writing to the church. He is writing to the redeemed of God that they may multiply the grace and peace they have received. His focus here is not on knowledge unto salvation, but knowledge for sanctification. Peter continues, 
as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. As the redeemed of the Lord, Peter tells us that we have been equipped with all that we need to live a godly life. Not only have we received the total forgiveness of sins, but we have received the ability to be more and more conformed to our Savior. Peter tells us that we may do so by growing in knowledge. How is it that we go about gaining the knowledge of him who called us? It may be helpful to first consider not how to go about it, but how not to go about it with a bit of historical context. Peter is writing at the time in church history when the teachings of Gnosticism are developing and threatening the spiritual lives of the flock. This movement faced by the early church placed the emphasis more on an individual's mystical knowledge of the divine rather than that which the church had received from God through the scriptures and the work of the apostles by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It saw personal experiences with God as more important than that which had been revealed in the scriptures and the witness of Peter and his fellow apostles. This teaching viewed the material world as flawed and evil and often led to those holding it to its teaching living wicked and immoral lives. In short, this teaching placed the pursuit of spiritual knowledge in the experience of the individual and allowed for the sinner to indulge their wicked nature in the process. This is certainly not the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So we begin to understand Peter's focus. In his time, he is writing against a hedonistic perversion of Christianity that places the focus on the individual rather than on the redeeming work of Christ. In standing against this false teaching, Peter reminds the Christian church of their need for knowledge, knowledge of the exceedingly great and precious promises which they have been given. How then do we develop this knowledge? First and foremost, we have the testimony of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit has given us a library of books that we may know God better. To learn about the precious promises God has made since the dawn of creation, all we must do is open his word. We may learn of the promise of a savior after the fall of man into sin. We may read of the calling of Abram and the life of the patriarchs. We may understand the types and shadows of the tabernacle and the long suffering of God with a stiff necked people. We can open to the prophets and see the many times our Lord called his people to repent, and to follow him. We may trace the steps of Jesus as he was incarnated, lived righteously before the father and was nailed to a tree. But how much time do we devote each week to reading our Bibles, to understanding it, to meditating upon the thoughts of God? If we are to grow in our knowledge of God, we must be diligent to set aside time each day to hear from him. The many promises and assurances given to us do little if they do us little good if they are bound up in a book on our shelf. They do even less good if that book gathers dust. Jesus tells us, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Abiding in the word, feeding upon the truth increases our knowledge of God. Certainly within the scriptures, there is much that is difficult to understand. Yet we need not worry. Peter tells us that we have received by his divine power all things that pertain to life and godliness. We are equipped with all that we need to seek the knowledge of God. Does this mean then that if we open to any scripture right this moment that we can all understand what we read? No. 
Does it mean that we will understand all of the scriptures in our lifetime? Absolutely not. What does it mean? What it means is that through the diligent and faithful study of God's word and by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we will understand more and more about our God. In doing so, we will find ourselves more and more consumed in the glorious majesty of our God and his work in all of creation. And as God becomes bigger and bigger in our vision, sometimes it becomes the very root of all that we do, we will find that the worries and cares that destroy our peace will become smaller and smaller. For no earthly burden can measure up to an infinite God. And in so doing, we will find ourselves understanding the petition of our Lord when he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. When we begin to understand the scriptures and grow in our Christian faith, we see that our growth in knowledge is more than just reading comprehension and memorization. Certainly, we may know how to read, but if our eyes are unable to see the page without glasses, then we are ill-equipped to read in the absence of those glasses. So, too, we must realize that simply knowing the scriptures is not sufficient to grow in peace. We must have our spiritual glasses. If we are to grow through knowledge, we must seek understanding that can only come by the Spirit of God. Each time we seek to understand Scripture, we should bow in prayer, seeking eyes to see and ears to hear that we may grow in our knowledge of God. Indeed, it seems impossible that we should find ourselves growing without prayer. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. We are assured that our Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. As we seek to know God better, let us never overlook what we are doing here this morning. God goes to great length in his word to reveal himself through worship. We find throughout the Old Testament the ways God calls his people to worship him from the centrality of the tabernacle to the detail and each item placed within it, God goes to great length to stoop down with his people, to bend over, as it were, that they may know him, that we may know him. Not only do we see God revealed in the tabernacle, but the first four commandments that God gives to us relate to how we are to worship and to honor him. Even today, our worship is a reflection of God's character. We call upon him, and he not only meets with us, but receives our worship and communicates his blessing through the word proclaimed. But we must be careful that we do not see this hour of worship as our spiritual meal for the week. Imagine if you ate one meal per week. Would you be healthy and strong by the time the next meal came around? Certainly, we look forward to this time of worship. But if it is our only spiritual nourishment each week, we cannot be surprised when we become spiritually emaciated. As we consider then how we may know God, let us not miss the experiential knowledge we gain in our Christian walk. This is perhaps the most significant way our knowledge of God becomes solidified. Consider any time you have learned a new skill. Take, for example, learning to drive. For many of us, it was so long ago that we can hardly recall it. I count myself in that number. But if I strain, I can remember all the book knowledge that went into it. You have to know what to do before you depart, to check your mirrors, buckle your seatbelt, consider if you turned off the oven. Then you have to know how to put the car into motion, foot on the brake, move the car into gear. 
You need to know all the rules of the road. Yield to your right. Don't pass a stop school bus, etc. All this you needed to know to be a good driver, but you didn't really know how to drive until you got behind the wheel and practiced. But now, after many years, how many of those things do you think about? Probably none of them, except if you turned off the stove. So too it is in our Christian walk. As we study the scriptures, we learn to think the thoughts of God. We begin to walk according to his will. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we gain the head knowledge, and it changes us slowly but surely. But it is when the rubber meets the road that our head knowledge becomes all the more sure, increasing our faith and drawing us closer to our Savior. We have not been promised an easy life. In fact, we've been promised a difficult one. Jesus tells us as much in Matthew 16 when he says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We can see this in Paul's letter to the Philippian church as we read together earlier. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul speaks of forsaking his former life, all of his education, career, the prestige of being a Pharisee, that he may know Christ. Recall that Paul describes himself as a Hebrew among Hebrews and blameless under the law. And yet for his knowledge of the scriptures, it was not until he was born again of the Spirit that he truly understood all that he knew. In that knowledge, the apostle found grace and peace to endure all that God had called him to. Dear congregation, as we conclude this morning, let us be reminded that Peter points us to the exceedingly great and precious promises we have received. As we depart this morning, let us be reminded of just some of those from scripture. First and foremost, no longer do we bear the great weight of our sin. Through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, our great debt of sin is wiped clean. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Having our debts paid is only the beginning. With our slate wiped clean, we are not only made right with God, but we are brought into the family through blessed adoption. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We may be certain that our sojourn in this life will be difficult. As disciples, our Lord has commanded us to take up our cross and walk with him. Yet his promises stand that we shall not want, no matter our circumstances. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Through our trial, though our trials will at times weigh heavy on us, Hebrews reminds us the promise first delivered to Israel remains ours today. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear. What can man do to me? Even as we rest assured in our salvation and take comfort in the never-ending support we receive in this life, we look forward to the realizing of what we only now begin to experience. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In my Father's house are many mansions. 
it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As we run our race through every refining trial and tribulation, we can look forward to that day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Through all great promises, through all these great promises, we are reminded of our God's gracious care for us. And we are reminded why it is so important to have a knowledge of God. For we do not experience God on our terms, but through that which he has revealed to us. It is the knowledge of God that allows us to communicate with him in prayer and to worship him. It is this knowledge that allows us to forsake our old ways to follow Christ in this life. It is the promises of God that strengthen us that we may stand when we are called to take up our cross. It is the knowledge of God which is used by the Holy Spirit to multiply to us the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, assuring us of faith in the sacrifice of Christ and the sure promise that God will never leave us or forsake us. But how can we take hold of peace if we do not have the great and precious promises of God? May we heed the apostles' teaching to know God, that we may be counted among those who our Lord tells us are blessed because they hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Amen. Let us join together in a word of prayer. Almighty Father, as we consider these words this morning, we thank you that you have stooped down, that you may fellowship with us, that we may understand you. We acknowledge that we are but your creation and you are our creator. We pray that you would work in us, that you would expand our knowledge of you, that as we face the day-to-day trials of this life, that we would see you more and more and that our troubles may be less and less. We pray, Father, that you would work these things in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we may know you. We ask all of these things in our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.